0: Dads, I wanted to read a verse for you before we get rolling. Psalm 103, verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Listen, I think the world tends to make jokes about dads and, and a jab at dads, but dads, your uh, role is very important. Your work as a father matters. And I think it matters for a series of reasons, but one of them being is that uh, your children's uh, vision, at least initial vision of their heavenly father is connected to their earthly father. So as you show your children compassion when they deserve justice, that gives them a vision of how their heavenly father treats them. Dads, what you do matters. Uh, What you do is important. And I pray, uh, I pray that you know that and hear that today. We're beginning a new series of messages this summer uh, through, the, uh, through the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at, uh, t- uh, this, this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 9. But through the summer, we're going to go all the way to 15. And this is a focus on the first king of Israel, which is King Saul. We're going to be looking at Saul this summer, beginning today uh, with 1 Samuel chapter 9. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father God, we thank you uh, for fathers today. Um, Some of us have had great dads. Some of us have had not so great dads. uh, But Lord, we know that every human father is imperfect. Um, But at the same time, we get an initial vision of you through our earthly fathers. And and so Lord, I pray uh, for fathers today that we would, no matter what the world says about dads, that we would embrace Uh, your calling uh, to be great fathers uh, to our children. I I pray that we would love our children, sacrificially love our children, serve them, sacrifice for them, help us to be great fathers. And and Lord, uh, today, I pray that we would esteem our fathers, uh, that we would see the best in them, forgive them where they've wronged us, uh, but also uh, seek to love them. Lord, we thank you that you're a perfectly heavenly father, that where maybe our earthly fathers lacked You fill in the gaps. And Lord, we praise You for being our Heavenly Father. Lord, as we turn to the life of King Saul today, we're stepping into the realm of wisdom. and Lord, we need wisdom today. And so Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with Your will or Your Word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Our world is in desperate need of wisdom quite an understatement, right? Like as you look at the wisdom of the world, typically what the wisdom of the world does is it provides us supposed wisdom that is reductive and simplistic. Typically what it does is it, is it goes to these uh, extremes, these, these false dichotomies that the world gives us. And, and even many times from these false dichotomies and even in a contradictory way sometimes, uh, the wisdom of the world attacks Christianity. G.K. Chesterton made this that observation years ago in Victorian England, that the wisdom of the world would was seeming to attack Christianity from all these different sides, but in contradictory sides. And in fact, that reality led him to see the truth of Christianity. In his book, Orthodoxy, he wrote, Christianity was too pessimistic. And then it was a great deal too optimistic. Christianity was an attempt to Uh, to make a man too like a sheep. Christianity, it seemed, was the mother of all wars. One rationalist had hardly uh, done calling Christianity a nightmare before another would call it a fool's paradise. The world makes these, uh, these false dichotomies and even... Attacking Christianity from contradictory positions highlights the foolishness of the wisdom of the world. Christopher Watkins has written a new book called Biblical Critical Theory, where he kind of cuts through the noise of of critical theory and and he provides a a Christian approach to this. But what he does over and over is he shows the false dichotomies of much that is is taught to us in critical theory. And he takes what he calls a, a diagonal approach. What he's trying to do is trying to avoid the extremes that you find in in the world's critical theory. Christianity doesn't categorically reject two seemingly opposing positions, but it draws from both to establish truth and wisdom. I'll give you an example of what he does. He says, okay, uh, uh, try to pit love against justice. That's what the world does. That's the wisdom of the world. But, but Christianity offers something different. You see, the wisdom of the world says that we're to have love without justice or justice without love. Therefore, something is either unloving or it's unjust. But wisdom of, of the word says that love without justice is not true love. Or justice uh, without love is not true justice. So what Christianity tries to do is it tries to couple love with justice or justice with love. It, It avoids these extreme positions, these false dichotomies of pitting things against each other. As a result, the wisdom of the world, it tends to deconstruct and deconstruct to these destructive results. But Christianity does the opposite. It tries to construct to these flourishing ends. And all that is, is maybe high-level thinking. I recommend both those books to you. But my point is, is that the world is in desperate need of wisdom. We're in desperate need of wisdom. And we need to avoid these false dichotomies, the, these dichotomies that divide and deconstruct and destroy. And, and we need honest wisdom that, that brings together, that constructs, that is honest about boundaries, and, and also that establishes institutions that help to help humans flourish. We need wisdom today. That's why King Saul is so important. This summer, as we step into this study of the life of King Saul, it really, at the end of the day, is a morality tale. It's this parable about being blinded by the wisdom of the world. You see, King Saul, the nation of Israel, all of God's people, they were blinded by the wisdom of the world. Can that happen today? (laughs) Can we be blinded by the wisdom of the world? Similar to the period of 1 Samuel, we're at this moment where we lack wisdom. And that's why I think this passage is so relevant and so important because it calls us to understand the wisdom of the world. But at the end of the day, in understanding it, understand the limits of it, but really see the wisdom of the world through the lens of the wisdom of the word. Now, before we step into 1 Samuel 9, let me make four contextual points about what's going on here. 1 Samuel is the story of the beginning of Israel's monarchy. Now, just to set this in context, is as God's people went into Egypt and were enslaved, and they come out in the Exodus, and then they wander in the wilderness, then you have the, the period of conquest where they go into the land of Palestine, they, they establish the nation of Israel, and while they're there, they originally exist just as, as the 12 tribes, right? You don't have a king, you, you have the period of the Judges. And the judges are, that period is marked by moral decay, where, where uh, something happens and then God raises up a judge to judge the people, call them back to, to faithfulness. But, but really, that period is marked by disunity and moral decay. For, for maybe American eyes, think of Articles of Confederation. Like, like it, it was too loosely connected, it wasn't unified. And so they became more unified. And, and that's in maybe a similar way as what go, is going on during the period of judges. But second, 1 Samuel begins with this origin story of the prophet Samuel. Now the first eight chapters of 1 Samuel are about the the prophet Samuel. And Samuel needs to be understood as a devoted prophet. This man sacrificially served God's people during his lifetime. He he is someone that uh, stepped in 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 a very difficult season, this period of transition. And he's an example to follow as a devoted man. Number three, 1 Samuel 8 is really key to understanding the rest of the story because in 1 Samuel 8, there's this turn from the judges to the kings. In 1 Samuel 8, God's people cry out requesting a king. They want a king. The wisdom of the world is everybody around us has a king. We have all these problems. If we would have a human king, then everything would work out. So they cry out for a human king. Now, the the prophet Samuel goes to God with this request, but he's reluctant on it. He recognizes that this, there's, some, there's some lack of wisdom in this request. But, but God honors the request and gives them a king. But he does so with a warning. He says, okay, you see, from God's perspective, by asking for the human king, this human king that they would, that they would pledge ultimate allegiance to, they were actually rejecting the king of kings. That was God's perspective of it. That, that was this divine wisdom on it. But, but he gives them over to their blindness. Now, that's the terrifying thing of 1 Samuel. God can give us over to our blindness, and that's what he does. But number four, 1 Samuel 9 to 15, it's the story of God giving his people what they want, which was this fallen human king who, in the end, brought more harm than good. King Saul is this parable of being blinded by the wisdom of the world. Now, I want to be clear here. There's virtues to the wisdom of the world, and we'll chase that idea in a minute. But in the end, ultimately, the wisdom of the world is to be rejected if it's in contradiction to the wisdom of the word. As a result, 1 Samuel 9, it calls us to, number one, to understand the wisdom of the world. And number two, to understand the limits of the wisdom of of the world. And then by comparison, to understand the wisdom of the word and ultimately to faithfully obey the wisdom of the word. Well, let's start in the first couple of verses to understand the wisdom of the world. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Abithah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of than any of the people. These two verses begin the origin story, if you will, of, of King Saul. And it does it in a way that is true to many other uh, uh, significant figures in the Bible. It kind of it gives his lineage. There's nothing significant about his lineage, and there's really nothing significant even about his tribe of Benjamin. But what we do see, the significant thing that we do see is found in verse 2. And and this is really the key to understanding Saul. It describes him in two ways. He's handsome and he's tall. That's how he's described. Now now listen, if you think about Jesus, there's no really descriptions of Jesus' physical appearance. So there's more descriptions of Saul's physical appearance than there is of Jesus himself. Here's the point. He looked like a king. You want a king? I'll give you a king. And he looked like a king. He was tall. He was handsome. And I think 1 Samuel 9 too, that's the key, the key to understanding the moral tale of Saul. He looked like a king on the outside, but we're going to see that he didn't have the heart of a king on the inside. In other words, he was style without substance. Like today, the, the people had a, had a picture in their mind of what a ruler should look like, and he fit the stereotype. Here's my point. God's people got carried along with the wisdom of, of the world. They asked for a king just like everybody else. And they wanted this king who looked like a king. And according to the wisdom of the world, Saul should have been a good king. He looked the part. Now we need to be careful here. We should understand the wisdom of the world, but we should always run it through this lens of the wisdom of the word, okay? But that doesn't mean that the wisdom of the world Is necessarily bad. Maybe maybe there's virtues to being tall and handsome. As someone who's not tall and handsome, I'm a little bit skeptical of it, but maybe there is something good and virtuous about being a king who is tall and handsome. Now listen, the wisdom of the world, if you put it in a theological category of general revelation, there can be virtues to it. So general revelation is the truth that we can discover even if someone is not born again. Let me give you a couple examples. 2 plus 2 equals 4. You don't have to be a convictional, born-again Christian to know that that mathematical equation is true, that 2 plus 2 equals 4. But, but also there's, there's non-scientific, non-mathematical truths, nuggets of wisdom even that we can gain from the world that, that we're not to just categorically reject. I'll give you a second example. Uh, Brady and I have a little project this summer. Brady and I are are working to develop a a teaching team in RSM for the fall. We're going to try to get different teachers in there, and so we're going to create a, a teaching manual. And so for the teaching manual that we're developing, we're utilizing Linda Nielsen's teaching at its best. Linda Nielsen is not a believer She's written a book designed for, to help uh, college professors be more effective in teaching their students, including creating exercises to help their students understand what they're learning. So we're going to utilize some of her tools in developing this manual. We're, we're pulling from what I think is the uh, virtuous wisdom of the world thing in order to help us be better teachers to our students here. So again, maybe being tall and handsome is a good thing for a king. Maybe that's a virtuous thing if you put it in the category of general revelation. But we do need to be clear. We have to understand all of that through the lens of the wisdom of the word. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. But we have an obligation to understand it rather than just wholesale accepting it. And that gets to our second point. Understand the limits of the wisdom of the world. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Let me stop here. Again, this is, Origin story of King Saul. This is a moral parable about ultimately the failures of King Saul that leads to King David and this eternal divine covenant that God makes with King David. And the first thing we learn about King Saul is that he's tall and handsome. And now this is the second thing that we learn about him. Let me make a couple of observations. Number one, Saul was not a shepherd. Do You see that? David was a shepherd. So many patriarchs were shepherds. And this theme, this biblical theme of of, of a shepherd, that runs from the Old Testament even into the New Testament. So even as elders in our church, we talk about this image of being a shepherd. The the shepherds cared for their sheep. They lived with their sheep. They got into the mess of it with their sheep. Shepherds are not esteemed in the ancient Near East culture, but but it's this theme that runs all through the Bible as a great image of what a leader should be caring for his sheep. Saul is not a shepherd. He's a keeper of donkeys. And second, I think we're supposed to see that he's not a very good keeper of donkeys. Do you see this? Like, listen, his donkeys get lost and he has trouble finding them. In case you don't know, donkeys are bigger than sheep, right? Like if, if a little lamb gets lost, maybe it's hard to find them. But a big donkey, that, that's easier to find. Listen, ranching is, is similar in a way to like being a good surgeon or, or being a good mechanic. But like there's head knowledge to it, but, but there's also hand knowledge to it. It requires skill. It requires wisdom. And what the author, I think, is subtly communicating here is, is that uh, Saul lacks those things. He looks the part on the outside, but on the inside, he, he's not displaying that he's a, he's a very competent person or a competent leader. On the outside, he looks like a king, but on the inside, something is off. He's not a good keeper of donkeys. Let's go from nine, or verse 5 to 10. When they came to the land of Zeph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to the servant, But if we go, what can we bring to the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Verse 8. The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to the servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Again, three more little subtle clues about what's going on inside Saul. Number one, notice that Saul was the first to give up. Now, he gives an excuse on why to give up and go back to his dad. But but I think it's a pretty self-serving excuse. But, But notice that on the inside, He was displaying a lack of perseverance. You see that? He was the first one to give up. He he was the the first one to display this character issue of being quick to give up. This is an immature moment in the life of Saul. But number two, and related, notice that Saul was problem-focused. He was pretty locked in and focused on the problems while the servant was focused on the solutions. The son, who should have been the leader, should have been focused on the solutions to the problem, but the servant is the one focused on the solutions. It, it takes maturity. It takes faith. It takes grit to not quit and find solutions, right? That's hard to do. It's easy to quit. It's easy just to, to turn it in. It, it's harder to work and find the solutions. And listen, leaders and kings, they need to find solutions in the face of problems. The, the, the servant, not the son, is the one who works towards the solution. The son is the one who focuses on the problems. Third, and related still, Paul displays poor planning, doesn't he? His food's out. He's not the one that has money he, the, the servant uh, proposes this solution of going to see the prophet and he's the one who has squirreled away some money to give as a gift to the prophet, but, but Saul's out of both of them. Why, why, did, why was he out of food? Why was he out of money? Shouldn't the son have had that? Again, this picture of Saul is beginning to emerge. Now listen, he's not an outright fool. Okay, he, He's not a bad person. The picture is more complex than, than those maybe extreme evaluations of him. Rather, he looks good on the outside, But possibly on the inside, we're seeing some immaturities. We're seeing some character issues on the inside. Look at verses 11 to 14. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, He is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find Him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high places. The, the, the key takeaway from these first verses is that is the wisdom of the world is found in verse 2. He's tall and he's handsome. And then as the story goes, this picture emerges of this tall, handsome man who maybe there's something off on the inside. Maybe he looks the part on the outside, but on the inside, there, there, there's, there's something off. He's, he's not displaying the, the heart of a king, if you will. So there's, we're, we're seeing limits to worldly wisdom. We're, we're seeing that worldly wisdom isn't the answer. Now, this section of verses 11 to 14, I think really at the end of the day, it's moving the story along, connecting Saul to Samuel. Now, now just to, to connect it here, Samuel is probably the most important figure in the land of Israel at this moment. He's probably, if you will, the most famous person in the land of Israel. He was the most significant religious leader in the entire country, and the country's not that big. So everyone knew who Samuel was, okay? Now look at the next section. Understand the wisdom of the word. 15 to 18. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the land of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel Saul, Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where the house of the seer is. Again, Samuel was famous, the most significant national leader at the time. Everyone knew who he was except for Saul. Like the original readers, would have been confused at this point. There would have been another subtle clue about the heart of Saul that he didn't recognize who Samuel was. Maybe this displayed some sort of spiritual apathy in Saul's heart. He, just, he's not, he doesn't really care about the spiritual things of the nation, the, the spiritual things going on around him. Maybe it displays a lack of intellectual curiosity or intrigue. Like He's just kind of focused on his own little world. He's not paying attention on the broader things that are going on around him. No matter what it is, a spiritual apathy or a lack of intellectual intrigue, those are terrible traits for a leader, right? Those are terrible traits for someone who's going to be king. However, true to God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness, God, through His Word, He begins to provide true wisdom. He's not given up on His people. His, his, his people have in many ways given up on him, but God hasn't given up or abandoned his word or abandoned his promises. He keeps his word here. He gives word to communicate. He prophesies about what's going to happen. Now there's a key word in here in verse 17 that, that, that just gives us volumes of wisdom on what's going on here. In verse 17, if you see, God says about Saul that he would restrain his people. Now, that's exactly what happens. Now, th- there's a number of different ways to interpret that term. In-, in one sense, restrain can mean govern or rule. That's exactly what, what he, does. He-, he does. He does defeat the Philistines. He does rule. He does govern. And-, and so that's a virtuous aspect of what Saul does. He does restrain in that way. But this word, this word also has a broader meaning. It can have a negative or a punitive meaning of, of constrict or hold back or hinder or even imprison. What God is saying here is that King Saul is going to do both. He's going to do all of that. He's going to do virtuous things, but he's also going to do evil things. God's word communicates true wisdom here. It doesn't let the people buy into like this, this hero worship of Saul. It also doesn't let them go to this other extreme of, of, of totally rejecting in some sort of revolutionary way all, all leaders. The wisdom of the world, it tends to go to one of those two poles, doesn't it? But like it tends to go to this, maybe what we can label as a utopian view of leaders, or it can go to this dystopian view of leaders. Like at one poll, people can like in an idolatrous way, like almost worship leaders, right? But like you see this when people can't be honest about the flaws of their candidate, or they place too much hope for happiness on if their candidate wins. You see this when there's these, artistic caricatures uh, of revolutionaries like that iconic picture of Che that's on so many t-shirts. Like, I mean, like that, that, like that's just idolatrous worship of somebody. It's putting too much utopian hope in a leader or, or in a political system. But but also the wisdom of the world, it can be overly cynical or or dystopian on another end, right? Like you see this when when people can't be honest about the virtues of a candidate. Or or like they lose their mind or pretend that the rule of the candidate they oppose is going to lead to some sort of like handmaid's tale nightmare, right? Like that's some sort of unwise dystopian view of things. You see this when people can't support a candidate who maybe checks like 90% of the boxes of everything that they want, everything that they're railing about on Twitter, but then they have this impossible prophetic standard. You, You see, that's the wisdom of the world at these extreme poles. But the wisdom of God's Word, it cuts through all of that. It says of Saul that that he's going to restrain. He's going to do some good things ruling as king, but he's going to restrain even that he's going to do wicked things as their king. This is what God's word does in the face of the wisdom of the world. It it rejects these these kind of, uh, it, it pokes holes in some of these false dichotomies. God's word doesn't allow us to buy into earthly idealism and utopianism. That's only going to happen when King Jesus shows up. But God's word also doesn't allow us to lose our mind or to lose our hope as if God is not sovereign over things. Notice the repetition in this section of my people. Over and over, God refers to his people as my people. He's the king, but they're my people. What he's saying here is I'm sovereign over all of this. You might, in this overly idealistic way, put too much hope in a human king and swear this ultimate allegiance to him, but at the end of the day, you're my people. I'm sovereign over this, is what God says. That's part of the good news of this passage, is that the wisdom of the word is that God is sovereign. He's the king of kings, and that's our hope. Look at 19 and 21. Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all clans in the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Saul settled for lesser things, but Samuel is calling him up to greater things. Saul is focused on donkeys. Samuel is calling him up to the high places. Saul is focused on the the earthly things but but Samuel is calling him up to a heavenly focus he he's lifting his eyes up to greater things this is the wisdom of the word the wisdom of the world is being contrasted and compared with the wisdom of the word and the word draws us up to these higher things it takes our eyes off of donkeys and puts them up on the higher places look at 22 to 24 Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, "'Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside.' So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, "'See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed.'" That you might eat with the guest. Again, Samuel gave Saul far more than what he requested. And instead of just uh, uh, being given directions to the prophet's house, Saul was given the prophet himself. But like Saul had lost his donkeys, but was given them back. Like, like Saul was out of food, but now he had this lavish meal. The, the wisdom of God's Word is graciously breaking forth into this, into this scene. You have this, this, this beautiful contrast that's going on here. We're, we're meant to, to, to see that compared to the, the, to the false or the limited wisdom of the world, that, that God provides this true and, and holistic wisdom. The, the Word of God allows for the, for the monarchy. But God gives a warning in the middle of it. He gives them something better. The wisdom of God's word protects us from these destructive extremes of like worshiping the king and from these false false dichotomies or, or limit, limited wisdoms of the world. Now, now listen, I, I hope I'm clear that I believe the wisdom of the world, that it doesn't just wholesale reject the wisdom of the world there's a again a place for the wisdom of the world at best it can be limited at worst it can be evil and, and even false that's why we're to do the work of of filtering it through the lens of the wisdom of the word is that what you do is your reality is it shaped by the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of the word Maybe let me ask it more directly. Does the Bible or the world shape your view of happiness or work or marriage or friendship or parenting or business or politics or church or charity or racism or sexuality or philosophy? The wisdom of the world has something to say to all those categories, but so does the wisdom of the word. The world's view of those things is at best limited. Do you trust the wisdom of God's word over the wisdom of the world? Friends, follow the truth of the word. Verses 24 to 27 call call us to follow the truth of the word. Verse 24 again. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city... A bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, "'Up, that I may send you on your way.' So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, "'Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here yourself for a while.' that I may make known to you the Word of God. Samuel took Saul on a little journey. God, through the prophet, told Saul to follow him. Lay down. Get up. Go this way. Stop here. Hear the Word of God. Samuel takes Saul on this this little journey. It's a test, if you will, to see if he's going to follow the Word of God. Is he going to follow God's Word over the wisdom of the world? Again, this whole chapter is this Beautiful comparison that is kind of weaved together, comparing the wisdom of the world. He's tall and handsome. Everybody else has a king. He looks the part with the wisdom of God's Word. Yeah, but there's some immaturities there. There's some lack of wisdom there. There's something that's not matching the outside to the inside. And ultimately, it's a call to follow God's Word. Now listen, I don't think any of that is easy to do. It's not easy because there's virtuous and helpful things about general revelation. Okay, If you're a banker, you need to be a good banker. If you're a soldier, if you're a coach, you need to be a good soldier and be a good coach. There's wisdom of the world that you need to learn. Maybe there's virtuous things about having a king that is tall and handsome. But in the end, follow the truth of God's Word. Follow the truth of God's word. Do the faithful work of understanding how to navigate this fallen world according to the wisdom of the word. Filter all the wisdom of the world through the lens of God's word. Ultimately, in the end, follow the truth of the word. That's the call of this. Listen, the the story of Saul, it's this call not to be blinded by the light not to be blinded by the light of the the world. The world's going to call us to all these things. The the world uh, thought Saul would be a good candidate to be a king because he was tall and handsome. However, the way he responded to life, it gave us these these subtle clues, these subtle clues that there was something in his heart, something in his character that uh, that demonstrated that he was not up for the task. You see, God's word cut through all the noise and it gave us wisdom that Saul would restrain. There's good things about restraining But there's also negative things about restraining. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Do you need to filter the wisdom of the world through the the lens of the wisdom of the word? Is there a category of your life that you need to do that work? Do you just breathe in what the world is selling you? Can can I close with um, just some wisdom of the world in order to see how we're doing with this? Here's the wisdom of the world. Follow your heart. You ever said that? You ever counseled someone to follow their heart? Have you ever used that reasoning to make a decision? Uh, Nate Picklewitch is an author and pastor up in New England, and here's what he says. Follow your heart. That has ended more marriages, mutilated more bodies, destroyed more souls, and ended more lives than the devil could have ever imagined. It is hell's most effective slogan yet. He got a point, doesn't he? Follow your heart. Listen, maybe your parents got a divorce because your dad was following his heart. Like, like, listen, people all over this country are mutilating the bodies of their children based upon the wisdom follow your heart. That's the wisdom of the world. And we've got to filter that through the lens of the wisdom of the Word. Now listen, to give some balance maybe to this, when I planted Redeemer Church, I felt God was calling me to do it. And I'll go one step further. I wanted to plant this church. I still want to be the pastor of this church. Depending on how you define it, I was following my heart. Like when I asked Kristen to marry me, Depending on how you define that, I was following my, my heart. I, I wanted her to marry me. I, I, I wanted that. So in, in some sense, in a general revelation sense, follow your heart maybe is helpful wisdom. But the Bible adds so much to that wisdom, doesn't it? You, you see, we can't just wholesale accept that because it teaches us that the heart is wicked and deceitful. You see, the world says that if you follow your heart, no matter what it desires, then no one should judge you for that because that's the heart's desire and, and that should be your moral compass. So, and In fact, the world would say, listen, if you're not following your heart, you're being inauthentic. You're not being courageous even. But, but the Word teaches us that in our, our heart's desires, there's things in our hearts that need to be repented of, turned from, fought against. So the world says that our heart's desire is our destiny. Now listen, if you're a high school senior and you're wondering, what in the world am I going to do next year? Maybe follow your heart is helpful to give you some direction in life. But but let me encourage you, that phrase can be a trap too. You you might follow your heart down a path that leads to destruction and and it's an unhappy path. The the word is more focused on, on how you work than the actual job that you take. You see, the word is more focused on saying, okay, how you do your work, no matter what your work is, that's the measure of faithfulness and fulfillment than the specifics of the career path that you choose. You should feel freedom in the direction that you should go. And further, existentialism, which is certainly the wisdom of the world. And and all these psychological theories, which are certainly the wisdom of the world, they will tell you to follow your heart and they treat it as if it's determinative. If your heart senses that and wants that, you you like determine you have to go that way. It's almost like you're trapped in it. But the gospel is something different. The word teaches that Jesus died to pay for and atone for your sins. And as a result, it makes you right with God. It moves you from this category of enemy to God to an adopted son of God. You're in this family category now with them. And as a result of that, you're indwelt by the Spirit. Now the encouraging thing about being indwelt by the Spirit is is that He helps uh, uh, convict you, He helps uh, preserve you, but also the power of the Spirit is more powerful than the the power of your heart. Amen? Isn't that good news? You see, this wisdom from the world to to follow your heart, as, as if your heart like determines, and you can't change, it's determinative, you're stuck on this path. I want you to hear the good news that the Spirit is more powerful than your heart. In other words, you can change and you can grow and your sinful heart is not determinative of your future because of the good news of the gospel. Listen, it takes work to filter the wisdom of the world. Follow your heart. Maybe there's something there. There's a lot of destruction there too, right? Friends, 1 Samuel 9, it teaches us to understand the wisdom of the world. And more specifically, understand where it's lacking. And understand how the wisdom of the Word is better. Use the wisdom of the Word as this lens to filter the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the Word is better. Don't be blinded by the light. Don't be blinded by the light of the wisdom of the world. God, through His gospel, has something better for you. Let the wisdom of the world determine what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made known to us the paths of life. You have given us something better than sloganeering in the world. You have given us something better than anything this world has to offer. Lord, may we do the work to understand our age, do the work of understanding our industries, and doing a good job in the things that you call us to do. But at the end of the day, Lord, help us to really do the work of understanding the wisdom of the world through this lens of the word. And Lord, in the end, may our allegiance, our ultimate allegiance, not to be to some human king, but to the king of kings. And may we faithfully follow your word. It's in Jesus' name we we'll pray. Amen.